Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a study in the book of Ecclesiastes called Unsatisfied, The Search for Meaning. We're learning that chasing after satisfaction apart from God will leave us empty. Thanks for joining us. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth? Except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingertips. People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or they eat much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour, and all is lost. And in the end, there is nothing left to leave to one's own children. We all leave this world as naked and empty-handed as the day we were born. We cannot take our riches with us, and this too is a serious problem. Even so, there is at least one thing that I have seen that is good. It is good to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they seldom have time to brood over the past. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Simply dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Before there were movies and TV, and yes, there was a time before movies and TV. If a person wanted to visually tell a story, the means by which they would do that would be art. Now, I have to confess to you, I wasn't really a big fan of art until I was uh, in college and I got to be able to go on a trip all throughout Europe with some of my professors, and one of the required classes on this trip is art. And we all kind of groaned, and we're going to have to grin and bear it, and then as time went on, and we went to all these different museums, I actually began to appreciate and love art. One of the reasons I love art is because an artist through a painting can tell us with just one picture an entire story. One example of that is a painting by Quentin Metzis in 1514. I, get to, I got to see in the Louvre in Paris called The Money Lender and His Wife. Here is a picture of it. Now, at first glance, it seems simply to depict a husband and wife sitting at a table together. The husband is counting out the money he's collected from his job. And as you can see, his wife is watching him. Well, really, watching the money. As you look more closely at this painting, you're going to notice several important features, though. Most important of which is the book that that woman is holding. I know you can't see it, but it is a book of devotion. So instead of engaging in her spiritual reading, she has become enamored and distracted by what lays on the table there. In this, the artist is showing us how easily our souls can be pulled away from the worship of God with money. Friends, to use the words of Solomon, that's nothing new under the sun. 
That's nothing new under the sun. All of us feel this tension. We know that God demands our highest allegiance. We believe there's nothing more precious than his gospel. And yet, we find ourselves so easily distracted by wealth and the promises of wealth. Like this woman, sometimes, let's just be honest, we'd rather thumb through a mail-order catalog than spend time in God's word. Money can be a gift from God to enjoy, but it can also be a thorn. And that is the warning of that painting. It's also the warning for us this morning as we continue a series we've been in together as a church in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes that we've called Unsatisfied. Now, if you haven't been with us, I want to just say this again. The book of Ecclesiastes, though it was written about 3,000 years ago, is as relevant today as ever in the 21st century. Because Ecclesiastes is forcing us to ask some of the most important questions of life. Questions like, why is there still injustice in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Or the question Jeff helped us wrestle with last week, which is, is life better to do together or alone? Is it better to do life together with others, or is it better to do life alone? These are all questions we've asked at various points in our lives, but overarching them all is the most important question Solomon is asking in Ecclesiastes, which is, can a person find meaning and satisfaction in this life under the sun? And that phrase, under the sun, is referring to the life here and now. Life not with an eternal perspective, life on earth and so with this question on mind, in mind, Solomon has gone on a search. He's gone on a search to check out all the things life under the sun have to offer and to discover whether or not they can truly satisfy a person. I've come to think of Solomon sort of like a mentor or maybe even a tour guide because as you know, there's two ways to learn something in life. The first way is to learn in retrospect or in hindsight. And the second way is to learn through wisdom. Let me give an example of this. You could tell your children that the fire is hot and they shouldn't touch it. And if they believe you, that's wisdom. Or they can learn by actually touching the fire and burning themselves. And if we let him, Solomon is basically wanting to keep us from touching the fire. He wants to give us wisdom for living. And in our passage this morning, he wants to give us wisdom about the one thing people have sought above every other thing in order to find satisfaction in this life under the sun, wealth, money. And so if you're following on your notes, here is the question he is going to be goading us with. He's going to be prodding us to come to a conclusion of, can a person find satisfaction in wealth? Now, of course, the answer to that question isn't going to surprise us. There's no surprise ending here. So maybe the better question for us this morning is, are we going to heed his wisdom or are we going to continue to get burned? With that, I encourage you to take your Bible and turn it to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 8 this morning. If you're still getting used to where Ecclesiastes is in your Bible, it's really about halfway back, right after the book of Proverbs. And if you don't have your own Bible, we always carry some of the black Bibles somewhere underneath the seats there for you. We would love for you to grab one of those this morning. You can find this on page 463 of those black Bibles. We're going to be going all the way through chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to be jumping around a bit, but all of it is really centered on Solomon's wisdom about wealth. And because we want God's wisdom and not just my wisdom, why don't we turn to him now, bow our heads and pray and ask him to speak to us this morning. 
Lord, we are grateful, as difficult as it is, for the book of Ecclesiastes. Because it is prodding us, it is goading us to ask some of the most important questions in life, including the question about wealth and money. Something we face in this country every single day. And so, Lord, we want to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We invite your spirit, who is already present with us, to work in our hearts, in our minds. Let this not just be my words, because that would be fruitless. Let this be your word, and let us receive it. For your sake, we pray. Amen. If you're following on your notes, in this text, Solomon reveals five problems with wealth. So in other words, he's on a search, he's observing, and here are five things he observes, five problems he's observed about wealth. The first one is seen right away in verse, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, which is, if you're on your notes, wealth is used by the powerful to oppress the poor. The first problem with wealth is that it's used by the powerful to oppress the poor. Look at verse 8. If you see the poor person oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Verse 9 is a little tricky to translate and understand, but it seems to be saying that people who are on the top, like a king, are the ones who derive the ultimate benefit from wealth. Somehow, Poor people always get the worst end of the bargain. It is a cycle, Solomon observes, of the rich becoming richer and the poor never able to get out of this cycle of poverty. These are injustices that we have seen throughout the world in every single government in every single time. It's why he says, don't be surprised by this. Don't be surprised when you see people in authority abuse their power. This is the way the world has always worked. We saw it in communism when the state seizes control of the means of production. But friends, we see it in capitalism as well whenever profit is pursued without the regard of the well-being for another person. He sees something that we all see. We all observe this. Systematic oppression and injustice at every level of society. As long as we live our lives under the sun here, we will see people buying their way to power, using public position for personal gain, and manipulating the system for their own advantage. You're thinking, yeah, I just opened the newspaper this morning. I know. That's the way the world. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But, as Christians, should we do something about it? Should we be concerned about it? As most of us already know, I hope I'm not saying anything new to you, but if you live in the United States, you are the rich that Solomon is talking about. Whether you consider yourself rich or not, as Americans, we're in the top 5% bracket of the world's wealth. And so perhaps Solomon is goading us to consider this question, how are we playing into this system, this cycle of oppression? in ways we may not even be aware of. Now, I don't want to just speak generally here, so I'll give you one example. 
of how I realized I was playing in this cycle of oppression without even knowing I was doing it. Let me give you an example of the clothes we're wearing right now. Are we okay with buying clothes from companies that are manufactured by workers who are working in unsafe, inhumane, or unhealthy conditions? You know, that $5 t-shirt that was such a good deal is $5 for a reason. And it's not because the company's willing to lose money. It's because most likely they're taking advantage of someone somewhere creating that same cycle of oppression that Solomon observes in this life under the sun. Did you know that slave labor, it's another word for it, amounts to $51 billion globally? Should we be concerned about that as Christ followers? As the one who came to set the captives free, as Chuck read this morning, yes, what can you do about it? It starts with our wallets, like so many things do. It starts with our wallets and not supporting the companies that continue these inhumane practices. Well, how do you get started? I'm glad you asked. Let me give you one opportunity. There's an app for that. Did you know that? Go on your phone and search for ethical shopping, and I guarantee you there'll become tons of opportunities for you to see. The one I'm using right now is called Good On You. Good on you. I just have to type in the name of the company I'm thinking of buying a product from. And they will pop up their labor. They'll pop up what they're doing with the environment, which is an important thing for me as well. I think it should be for all Christians. He asked us to steward the earth he's given us. And so you can know if I'm buying this product, what am I actually buying? If you're not a phone person, they put out a book every year called Good Shopping Guide. It makes it easier for us to purchase things with confidence that our dollars are not supporting terrible labor practices. I don't want to ruin your day. I might have already. But if you're following, we must be aware of how money creates a cycle of oppression. As Americans, we must be aware of how our spending, even when we don't know it, is possibly creating a cycle of oppression. Until we are aware, things aren't going to change under the sun. Second problem with wealth is that it can't satisfy our deepest longing. We've heard this before. Would you read verse 10 out loud with me on your notes there? It says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. Now, if you got your finger there, go to chapter 6, verse 7. He echoes this and says, Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. Solomon is suggesting that the person who loves money, who loves wealth, is in a catch-22 all the time. They want something that will never actually satisfy them. Desire always outruns possessions. No one ever reaches a certain amount of money, he says here. And says, well, I make $100,000 and I don't want a cent more. Now, once you've had it, Solomon says, you're going to want more of it. Desire is like a fire that is constantly consuming and burning. You want an example? It happens every year at Christmas. We sit around as families opening presents, which please don't hear me pouring... That's like a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to celebrate an open presence. However, what, what I've realized in my life is that when I end up getting something I wanted, I enjoy it for a little, but pretty soon there's something else I want in addition to that. My longing that I think is going to be satisfied around the Christmas tree 
isn't actually ever satisfied. The difficult thing about all this, I've said this before, is it actually does give us a little jolt of satisfaction, doesn't it? If I get that thing, I enjoy that. That's okay. As long as I'm realizing that that's not going to ultimately answer life's biggest questions. I can't find meaning in the stuff around the Christmas tree. People who live for money are never satisfied. They always want more. John Rockefeller was one of the richest men in the world ever. But when someone asked him how much money was enough, do you know what he said? Just a little more. The danger of this is even if we're thankful for what we have, we often think about the things we don't have or how we can get them. This explains discontent when we feel I can't afford that thing that I really want or the guilt we feel when we buy it anyway and go into debt to do it. The appetite for wealth, for money, for possessions, for stuff can never be satisfied. You can either learn the hard way through experience or you can heed the wisdom of Solomon. Third problem with wealth Solomon observed in this life under the sun is that it leads to anxiety. I know what some of you are thinking, like, ah, I think it could actually relieve a lot of my anxiety. Well, let's see what he says about it in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. He talks about two problems with wealth that lead to anxiety. The first is that other people are going to take it from us. It might be that oppressive government in verses 8 and 9 who are always calling with higher taxes. Or it might be those children, God bless them, who got those hungry mouths. Like if you've got a teenager right now, you know what I'm talking about. They're just taking your money because you're constantly feeding them. Or it might be the people who come begging for you to give them something, the spongers, the freeloaders, the hangers-on. But no matter who they are, the more we have, the more people will try to get it. If you ever read a biography of a, of a famous rich person, the question that haunts them in almost every book I've read is do people love me for who I am or for what I have? And they wrestle with this very difficult question. Do people really love me for who I am or just because of what I can give them? The second way he says wealth can lead to anxiety is that the more you have, the more you have to worry about. He basically says in verse 12 that the stress of wealth is going to keep you up at night. I love how the, new, or the Living Bible says this, and let's read it out loud on the screen here. It says, The man who works hard sleeps well, whether he eats little or much, but the rich must worry and suffer insomnia. As a general rule, wealth will complicate your life. The more you have, the more there is to keep track of. Some of you are going, I still would like that problem. On the other hand, Solomon says, Think about a person who goes to work all day. They come home. They have a meal. Maybe it's not even a very big meal. Watch a little TV. They go to sleep, and they sleep like a baby. There's nothing to worry about. As one commentator I read asks, have you ever considered that one of God's great mercies towards you is that he restricts the amount of money you make? It is funny, isn't it? Perhaps this is why Jesus said to us in Matthew 6, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then here's the kicker. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? We think it does. But Solomon says it actually takes hours of sleep away from your life. The fourth problem with wealth is that it doesn't provide the security we think it will. Oh, it can provide security. It's not a bad thing, but it's not going to provide the security we think it will. Look at verses 13 through 14. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that then when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Solomon is given an example of a wealthy man who tries to hoard all his wealth, yet in some risky investment, he loses it all so that he can't even pass it on to his children. What he thought was going to bring lasting security was gone. This made me think about the parable of the rich fool that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12. You remember this guy? He's got so much money, he doesn't know what to do with it. And so he decides, well, I'm going to build bigger barns to store all this money. That's a great idea. Now I will be secure forever. And Jesus says in Luke 20, verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Did you know that's the only time in the Bible that God personally calls someone a fool? Why does he call him a fool? Because the thing he was thinking was going to provide lasting security would be gone that very night. And yet, how often we think the same. It's not suggesting that we shouldn't be wise and plan ahead. Solomon writes plenty about that in the book of Proverbs as well, but it is a warning that if we are putting our security, our lasting security, in the wealth of this world, it's foolishness. The fifth problem with wealth related to the fourth, but so much bigger, is that wealth is only temporary. As Solomon observes the world, he observes wealth is only temporary. To put it more simply, we can't take it with us. And can I just say to you, this really bugs Solomon. It really bothers him. This idea that he has accumulated all this stuff. And he can't take it with him. In verse 15, he says, Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and, everyone, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. The day is coming when we have to leave all this behind. So what gain is there in living for money? This is so discomforting to Solomon that he continues it in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And I got to tell you, what we're about to read are some of the darkest, most depressing verses in all of Scripture. 
He says, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. The man in these verses seems to have it all. Not only was he worth a fortune, but he was famous as well. Something people today value maybe even more highly. Yet, for some unspecified reason, he's not able to enjoy what he has. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And then when it's left, it's left to a stranger. Probably that corrupt government who's coming after our money. And he says, this is a grievous evil. Literally, that means this makes me sick to my stomach. It gets even worse. He tells a disturbing analogy in verses 3 through 6. A man may have a hundred children and live many years. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. That's dark. This is another one of Solomon's better than statements. If you were here last week, Pastor Jeff talked about these things where Solomon often will compare one thing to another thing, saying this is better than this. And this he compares a man whose life is full of material blessing to a child who never sees the light of day. Given the vanity of life in this fallen world, Solomon bitterly concludes that the stillborn child gets the better end of the bargain. Now, at first glance, this seems so harsh. What is described in these verses, by the way, is not a a real man, but an exaggeration to prove a point, but it seems so harsh. I mean, he's describing the epitome of somebody who has reached the top, especially in Old Testament times. This man has 100 children. He lives for 2,000 years. And yet, Solomon concludes... It's meaningless because the man wasn't satisfied. Sadly, when he died, he didn't even receive the honor of having a decent burial. It's like his relatives were only around him for the money, wondering, when is this old man finally going to die so we can get to the will? Now, for those who have miscarried children, this verse can wound or frighten at first glance. It seems that Solomon is speaking without any sort of compassion or mercy, it also seems to me that he's being theologically inaccurate as speaking as if there is no heaven or light or comfort for such a child, only darkness. But again, we need to remind ourselves often that Solomon is writing about life under the sun, life without God. And so he's exposing this wealthy man's deep error of thinking those who love wealth think they have achieved everything a person could desire. That's got to be the best possible life, right? On the other hand, if that's your way of thinking, the worst possible life is a life that barely got started and never got to experience all these earthly treasures. Solomon is turning this view on its head. The stillborn child, though she or he never had money, never got to build a house, never saw the latest movie or wore the latest fashion trends, is nevertheless the one who is at rest. Did you see that in there? Rest with God is the one thing this wealthy man does not possess. For all his wealth, he has no rest. So the question Solomon is goading us with in a very difficult way, 
is who is the poor one here? The point of these verses is not to minimize the tragedy of a stillborn child, but to emphasize through a shocking comparison the tragedy of a life that is lived without being rested in God, no matter how blessed it may seem on the outside. Remember that when Solomon says all of this, he's leaving God out of it. He's talking about life under the sun. He's not talking yet about death and all the promises of Scripture. He's prodding us, goading us to ask the question, would you rather be this man or this child who is at rest with God? We're being forced to ask in the most extreme of examples, if you're on your notes, what's better? What's better? Wealth under the sun or rest in God forever? How would you answer that? Hopefully, in all we've seen this morning, the answer has become obvious for Solomon. Rest in God is better than wealth under the sun. Like any idol we worship, wealth simply won't deliver on its promises. Have you learned that about idols yet? They just don't deliver on their promises. They're like mirages in a desert. They look so good, but they just can't satisfy. So how does one find rest with God? Does it mean we have to get rid of all our money? So it never tempts us again? No. According to Solomon, it's not that extreme. It's actually quite simple. If you're following there, to find rest in God, we must be content with our lives. To find rest in God, we must be content with our lives. Now, I said it was simple. I did not say it was easy. Contentment. Eh. I have chapter 6, verse 9 in the New Living Translation on your notes there. Can we read it out loud together? It says, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Oh, man. But that new driver, I'm telling you. It's going to give 10 yards. The secret to rest is to be content with what God has given you rather than always grasping, desiring, pursuing more, more, more. We've heard it several times already in this series. We're going to hear it several more. Be satisfied with what you have, he says. Instead of always searching for more, that's the secret to life under the sun. It's especially true when it comes to money. Look at chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. These verses should sound familiar to us by now. We've heard them at least twice already. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. So he's been talking about life apart from God. Now he's talking about life with God. And life with God is a gift. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Notice the difference here. Wealth can be viewed as a gift from God that can be enjoyed. Apart from God, though, It will only lead to problems. This helps us balance our view of wealth and possessions. The world that God has created for us is full of many rich gifts, isn't it? But the power to enjoy them, here's the key to life, does not lie in the gifts themselves. 
If you're following on your notes with me, Solomon says it's vanity. Foolishness, if you prefer. Vanity to worship the gifts instead of the giver. You're not going to find contentment there. And yet it's my constant temptation as a human being. That's why the Bible, I think, talks about money more than almost any other subject. God knows our hearts pretty well, doesn't he? He knows my heart. And he says, Steve, you cannot serve both God and money. So be content with what you have. But that's hard, Lord. Be content with what you have. And you will find rest. 1 Timothy 6 captures this beautifully. I thought about putting it on the screen. But hey, let's be first standers in God's word. Let's turn there. So near the back of your Bible... If you come to 2 Timothy, you've gone too far. That's one of my favorite jokes, by the way. <laughs> if you come to Hebrews, you've gone too far. How's that? 1 Timothy chapter 6 is really the New Testament version of Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. If you're using that black Bible, you can turn to page 831 and find it there. Chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Or maybe I'll translate it and say, godliness with contentment is the key to life. It's the secret to life. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Does that sound familiar at all? Naked we came into this world and naked we will depart. A lot like Ecclesiastes. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Well, are we? Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And we have seen five of those griefs today. We can't get a better warning than this. It reminds me of this interaction that was recorded from the U.S. Navy Communications Department. Voice one, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Voice two, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Voice one, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Voice two, no, I say again, divert your course. Voice one, this is the aircraft carrier Enterprise. We are a large warship of the United States Navy. Divert your course now. Voice two, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> and it's our call. Wealth is a constant temptation calling us, but we can divert our course and we can find contentment with what we have instead of grasping for what we don't have. If you're following on your notes, here's Solomon's wisdom for us today. True joy. True joy is given as a gift from God. We have to view it that way. And here, here's the key. It is found in the everyday things of life. It is found in the everyday things of life. That's the secret to contentment. It's the secret to rest, finding joy in your work. Finding joy in your relationships. Finding joy around that supper table. Finding joy as you play that game. 
finding joy in the everyday things of life, God has already given us. Our time on earth is short, it's a vapor, it's a mist, and yet it is a sacred gift. And we have the opportunity to view every moment of every day as a gift given us from God. And when we do that, we will experience joy. We believe in a God of joy. Solomon believes in a God of joy. And yet his warning, his prodding is without God, life is going to be meaningless and miserable. Especially if you're living for money. Will we heed his wisdom? Or will we get burned? I read this week a story I had to share with you as I was reading through one of the commentaries. It said of when the, they excavated the volcano of uh, Mount Vesuvius. You remember that in Italy? So they were excavating and literally people were frozen in place because the volcano just came and it froze them in place. And so as they excavated, you can find them in different positions doing different things. And they had this one woman who was running towards the gates for freedom. And yet her body was totally back this way, reaching for something. And so they wanted to know, what is it she was reaching for? And it was a bag of pearls. Freedom was so close, and yet she couldn't leave without her bag of pearls. And we might shake our head at that, and yet it's such a temptation for me to turn from life to death, reaching for something I think is going to satisfy me. It ain't pearls for me. But there are things Whatever it is, our wandering appetites, aren't they always just reaching out, hoping for something to satisfy, but they can't? Friends, I'm being strong this morning on this, because the Bible is strong on this. Though money in itself is not evil, we love that. It's harder to hear, it is hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because like that woman reaching for her pearls, my heart is divided. And Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. I'll close with these words from that same chapter of 1 Timothy we read early. Hopefully you still have your finger there. This could really be Paul's summary of Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. Let's look at 1 Timothy starting in verse 17 of chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world. Who's that? That's us. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He is a God of joy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. We have open hands with what God has given us. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. If you're on your notes, the secret to enjoying life now and forever is to turn away from the illusion of wealth and find contentment in God alone. The secret to enjoying life now and forever is to turn away from the illusion of wealth and find contentment in God alone. So I'll ask you the tough question, where is your heart this morning? Is it divided? Or as we sang, is it set on him? Is it set on him? We'll close with this question. Is my heart divided or set on finding contentment in God? Will we heed his wisdom this morning? Chuck and I talked about how to close the service this morning, and I felt led actually to write a prayer like a corporate prayer. I know we don't do those very often. It's just an opportunity for us to confess together.
Confession's a good thing. It's an opportunity to start fresh, to remind ourselves of who we are and what we have in Christ Jesus. Before we do that, though, we always want to leave space at the end of hearing God's word for God's spirit to work. And so I'm going to invite you just for 60 seconds or so, you know, what, what did God lay on your heart this morning? Maybe one of those problems is standing out to you right now. Maybe that word rest is stirring in your soul. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. So let's spend some time in quiet reflection and then I will pray for us and invite you to do your part as well. Lord, we are thankful for your word, which stands the test of time, a firm foundation. We were reminded this morning, as Paul said, it is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness, and it has done all those things for us today. So we give you praise. Praise you that you don't want to leave us where we are. You want to transform us. We acknowledge to you today, corporately, the idol of wealth, which is ever-present. You have shown us, though, that it is a vapor. It is a mist. It is here today, and it is gone tomorrow. So let us not set our hearts upon it. And yet, how often we do. And so together as the body, we want to confess to you. We want to bear our hearts open to you. And so we confess to you the sin, unintentionally or not, of using our wealth in ways that may continue a cycle of oppression. We reflect on that. How am I even unaware of it? Instead, and now this is your part, would you read this? Would you teach us to be aware of others and have open hands to give generously to those who have need in the same way that you have given to us? We confess the sin of believing wealth will satisfy our deepest desire.
instead we respond. Show us the emptiness of this and teach us to find our contentment in you alone, O Lord. We confess the sin of anxiety over our wealth. Where are you anxious this morning, friend? What would it look like to give that to him? We respond. Teach us not to be anxious about anything, for as Jesus said, worrying cannot add a single hour to our lives. Instead, let us trust that as our perfect Father, you will always provide what we need. We confess the sin of hoarding and finding security in our wealth. We admit we are tempted to build bigger barns. Instead, we pray, teach us to steward what you have given us faithfully and find our security in you. Finally, we confess the sin as, li- as if living, the sin of living as if this life was all there is. How easy it is to do that. But instead, remind us often that the treasures of this earth will rust and be destroyed and help us to store up treasures in heaven. Give us hearts that seek first your kingdom now and forever. And now, Lord, we thank you that in Christ we are already forgiven. We receive that, and as a response to this good news, we declare these words to you this morning. Would you stand? And let's remind ourselves about the giver of these gifts.